2: as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello and
0: welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1151. I'm FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris And it's a tradition in the FDA Lounge to review some of our finest guest appearances from the last 100 mini-episodes. These are some of the best moments that we had from mini-episodes 1051 to 1150, ones that reinforce the reality that we really are the show where nothing is off-topic. You flagged on Twitter that story about uh, the NFL's challenges with insurance and the fact that there's only one insurer that will will take them on anymore for uh, head injuries and that type of thing, and that uh, it presents, I think, a critical risk to the future of the NFL. Because if, if that kind of stuff gets to be ruled uninsurable by any of the big insurers out there, I mean, it might be melodramatic to say the NFL shuts down, but the, the challenges in terms of reopening would be just staggering. So I, 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 I want to commend you for, for having pointed out that story, because it's way more significant than anybody thinks right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't use Twitter that often, so I'm surprised you saw that. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm more of a Facebook guy. But um, I saw that, and uh, I just really, really piqued my interest because, you know, over the next five years, I don't know how long it would take for it to, uh, you know, negatively impact the game. But you know, that's a that's a. That's a real problem if the the uh, insurance carriers don't don't back the, the NFL anymore. Um, you know, let's leave them very vulnerable. Uh, something like that. Through good bargaining agreements, you can kind of stave off those kind of issues because you can address it up front. Uh, in the case of those type of injuries, X, Y, and Z would happen instead of just leaving it up to the insurance. Uh, battles. Um, but I'm not an insurance guy by any means, and I don't know exactly how it all works, but uh, I just know that if you try to have a uh, viable business and nobody
0: will cover you, that's not <laughs> that's really good. The business climate in this country, things have been really ticking along pretty good the last two years plus, but... you've got a real stew brewing right now we kind of talked about this just briefly off air you've got a number of different factors uh whether it be brexit whether it be the the trade war with china and you had noted earlier today on twitter a little bit of a a little mini rally on the thoughts that that might hopefully be coming to an end i I know we've been hoping this for a while but it hasn't happened yet you've got that you've got the government shutdown which just increasingly appears to be kind of uh, putting a burden on this economy so yeah, as as you're looking at this, I mean, do all of those seem to pose a threat to you at this point in time? Some more than others. I mean, as, as you're looking at the board, basically, how do you kind of slot it out as far as the biggest risks we're facing?
2: Well, let's triage it, and and you you outlined perfectly the the three biggies, and that is, of course, uh, you're looking at the government shutdown. That's eight hundred thousand Americans who aren't working for the moment, and uh, yes, you can go on and say, th- "Oh, they'll get paid eventually." doesn't matter their wallets are shut right now so they are not spending at a time when all kinds of industry had expected planned um anticipated that they would spend and buy certain products and engage in certain services and you know certainly spend money you then have of course the tariffs on china and the steel and aluminum tariffs globally that is certainly affecting businesses who have to pay the tariffs that the Misunderstanding a lot of people have is that it they think it's China paying the tariffs. Oh no 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 no! It's U.S. businesses paying tariffs on Chinese goods and materials they need use or buy. Right. And uh, right. So then there's that, and then of course a, a kind of more of a side window issue is Brexit. The um, between the UK to exit the European Union and what they're trying to do to make sure that's not too much of a chaotic transition. So I would say that right now, it's got to be China that is affecting things the most. Here's why. There isn't an assembly line or supply chain in America now that isn't touched at some point by China, whether it's uh, rivets or parts or materials that they need from China to make their made-in-the-USA products, or who knows what, they manufacture in China. So it's become an issue, and I've already started to see companies, I just came from the Consumer Electronics Show, Rick, and um, GoPro, they're among the first, they've already pulled the plug, they're moving some of their U.S.-bound camera production that's on the ground in China, out of China. Hmm. They won't say where they're moving it, but they're moving it. Now, that costs money. Not too much, because they own their equipment, they just need a place. So they're, they're getting rid of the warehouse where they were manufacturing. But other companies aren't so lucky. They can outsource their business and their, their stuff to China. And, um, you know, at some point, though, we do have to straddle this problem and face it head-on, uh, the China cheats, And I respect the president for trying something new, but it's really starting starting to hurt companies, and I'm
0: seeing that. When I get to the part, I, I sort of sympathize with them at a part that I really didn't think that I would. The part about the uh, rededication of the USS Missouri and going there and where his mother was going to be front and center and it was going to be in honor of his grandfather, uh, and they were just sort of asking him to put aside his politics and everything like that, I, I think it's uh, fair from reading this to say that uh, his politics uh, probably don't match up very well with mine Uh, nor my thoughts on family loyalty versus what he ended up doing. But this is one of those weird things, though. I almost weirdly do have sympathy for him because, uh, particularly if he had the thoughts that he did about nuclear weapons and he seemed to uh, have some issues with that that ship having nuclear capabilities, Uh his grandfather is literally the only man in the history of the planet that ever dropped the bomb and did it twice twice. So you you wonder what kind of a thought that could leave in your psyche, particularly if you come to question the morality of it, as so many have subsequently. So that's a unique and sort of interesting burden to carry around. If you're completely convinced of the righteousness of it, then it's not a burden. If you're not as convinced about it, then uh, that might account maybe for some of why he uh, was as amb- ambivalent or uh, perhaps worse than ambivalent about his family heritage.
3: Uh, I think that's uh, very perceptive on your part and absolutely right. I mean, uh, you contrast uh Will's experience with his grandfather and the dropping of the atomic bombs with Will's older brother, Cliff. Uh, You know, the last time I talked to Cliff, uh, you know, Cliff, uh, first of all, he embraced his family. Uh, He is on, like, the board of the Truman Foundation or the Truman College or Foundation or whatever— uh, and and at, at one point, I don't know that he actually succeeded in doing this, but he uh, was going to write a book about his grandfather uh, dropping the nuclear bombs. Uh, so he, he would freely talk about his uh, who his grandfather was, and Will never would talk about it. He would get mad at his older brother, angry at his older brother, uh, for uh, uh, mentioning to anybody that they were related to Harry Truman, because obviously their last name was Daniel and not Truman. So it wasn't a given, like with John F. Kennedy Jr., who his, who his who his family was, and his lineage. So Will felt very ambivalent about all of this, and obviously, it all came out at that rededication of the, you know, SS uh, Truman uh, with nuclear weapons, uh, and he just uh, freaked out. Uh, direction, and so to sort of shortcut that process, it was part funny, right, but part very uh, revealing about his own character and his character flaws and his inability to commit to anybody or kind of anything, Uh, and uh, I thought that was uh, quite revelatory.
0: In New York, discussing this together in 2012, one of the topics that we were uh, getting on about a little bit at the time was cloud computing, which was uh, something of uh, a, a obviously a newer concept at the time, and you were kind of getting into that in a, in a great degree and and doing a, a wonderful job of kind of breaking it down for our audience so I'd like to start there because a lot of times I'm fascinated to sort of trace things through the history of our show we go back to 2007 so in terms of how long we've been around uh, this is maybe the fact I, I, I maybe about it actually let me correct myself this is the fastest moving time in human history so let me take this as a subject example right there uh, cloud computing 2012 versus cloud computing today uh, Alex how, how has it progressed?
4: Well, you know, it's progressed tremendously. I mean, I think in 2012, uh, you know, to sort of flip this on the other hand, which can still be made a very good argument for maintaining your own physical computers in a data center somewhere um, and, you know, having it, whether you had a whole room full of things or a rack or something else like that. And I think, you know, in the time that's elapsed, really – You know, the ability to have, you know, all the cloud computing resources that you want incredibly inexpensively, you know, and, you know, basically provided on demand as you need them or don't need them um, has, you know, come along and displaced really anybody but the most dedicated uh, companies, you know, need to actually maintain their own physical infrastructure. The fact that I can go to Amazon and basically get, you know, any quantity of computing resources that I could possibly imagine, you know, available, and you know, not, you know, just use them for this evening and then let them go. Not have to take any more payment than that. It's just mind-boggling. The fact that you know, if I have you know an incredibly large sum of data stored physically at my location, you know, I can even get. Uh, you know, Amazon to come send a truck over to transfer all the needed storage and drive it away, it's just just mind-boggling. So the whole concept of cloud computing has blossomed to an extent that was really almost impossible to imagine back in 2012. You know, we sort of felt we knew what cloud computing was, and it has moved onward tremendously to a point where we have a tremendous range of services, tremendous range of technology, tremendous range of providers, and the cost has come down, you know, unbelievably to, you know, probably fractions of a penny on what it used to cost, you know, quite far less than that, maybe a thousandfold, you know, uh, compute resources that we could get in the cloud, um, and the storage resources we could get in the cloud have come down. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and has become ever more useful. You know, you could use them for a tremendous range of tasks and you know, the technology to solve certain problems is available there now. You need face recognition, you need, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, you need, you know, big bookkeeping tasks, all the others. You know, go you know, to some books like Amazon, you know, you have libraries and, you know, infrastructure that you can rent to solve these problems, you know, on whatever scale you need. And, you know, it has really come of age to become something that uh, is unbelievably powerful and was an you couldn't even imagine back in 2012.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I enjoy most about our library of shows is is that we'll talk about something in a moment of time and as I say everything has been so fast moving in these last dozen years that we've been around uh, that you can go and, and you can see how it evolved and sort of compare it against uh, what the forecasts were going to be. And uh, it's, it's just uh, incredibly fascinating to me in that kind of a way. I'm going to pivot to you, Gary. On the time frame of the last half-dozen years or so, in terms of what you thought cloud computing was going to be versus what it is today, uh, how, how is it the same and how has it differed in some ways? You
5: know, I think the most interesting thing that I've noticed is um, – how important it, and this hasn't quite happened yet, it's sort of happening, just starting to happen now, is how important cloud infrastructures have become to what we think of as, you know, smaller or medium-sized businesses. Um, In the startup world, they're very aware of this because uh, a lot of startups start out with a business model that they want to scale to, essentially, to a global reach, right? Right. but there are lots of established businesses that depend on computing infrastructures of some kind that are starting to take a look at cloud services, because what they're realizing is that even in the small or medium-sized business that has a local or regional uh, reach rather than global, they depend on high availability. And the availability that they can get from a cloud-based infrastructure is, is sometimes as dramatically better than what they can provide for themselves, because it is just so very expensive to provide a high-availability system. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that sort of drove the original interest in cloud computing was, uh, a bit, you know, this idea that if you're a business and you want to have a scalable infrastructure, you have to put enormous investments into things that aren't really a part of your business, and you wind up having to run your own IT shop. So uh, what a lot of businesses are doing now is realizing, uh, and i kind of finally, you know, some of these opportunities have been available for a while, but I think people were sort of waiting and watching and, and seeing whether this could really be a thing. So we've noticed in the last year or so there is an increasing amount of businesses who are starting to explore this and what they what they're finding right away is, well, we have these apps that we wrote for our own business that support our business or talking about know, to help us engage with our customers in some way. Maybe it's an online you know, just as simple as an online way for them to buy our stuff, whatever that is. Uh, and they need to basically migrate those apps into the cloud, which is not straightforward. Uh, it, it really does require some expertise and some deep thinking about what the nature of that app is. Sometimes you need to throw the app away and start over with a different set of, of technologies in order to provide the same customer experience, or the better customer experience uh, in a way that you can host it on the cloud, reduce your internal IT costs. Um, so I, I think that's probably the most interesting thing that I've been seeing. i give you an interesting example. I can't name the customer um, but this is a customer that has a, a global-type system. And this brings up another issue, too. Uh, and this is another driver. They had a bunch of customers in the United States, and then they started getting customers in Europe over the last probably 10 years or so that they have been in business, and they became a global company. And then suddenly the Edward Snowden stuff happened a few years ago, and their their overseas customers some of them became very concerned about the hosting infrastructure being in the United States. And they basically said, yeah, you know, we demand that you put a data center in Europe uh, for us. So this company basically looked at their app and said, "Well, um, we can't really afford to run multiple data centers around the world." It's the reason you know the reason we were doing it this way is because we can afford to run one data center really well. We can run two or three data centers, and if that's what you want. And they realized that we. And, you know essentially re-implementing their application or refactoring it as we say in the software world uh, that, that allowed them to put data centers into places that were overseas that their clients could trust and I'm not saying that they were right uh, you know I'm not saying don't trust the US that's not what I'm saying at all but sure. I'm saying there were customers who were demanding, demanding this. and so they you know they refactored their app hosted it in a cloud infrastructure in Europe. Uh, And and there's another one in Asia. And that satisfied their overseas clients' uh, requirements for a locally hosted infrastructure without them having to replicate a really expensive data center overseas. And in fact, it worked so well that they eventually shut down their own data center and they host in the United States on a cloud infrastructure
0: as well. I'm going to have a little bit of fun with you here based on something okay, you said. Okay, okay. Right. Okay, because what you what you said about the electoral college. So let uh, me condense a lot of the talking points of, of the last year into this uh, the last couple of years into this little bit of mockery. You know, Trump, Trump does nothing but shatter the sacred norms of this country. Also, we need to abolish the filibuster, the Senate, the electoral college, and we need to pack the Supreme Court. So so Trump's the only one shattering norms, huh? That's the thing, Colin. Well, I'm telling you, uh, everybody has you started think, playing his if, game. You're all getting in the mud puddle trap. have started
1: truck. it?
5: You would have started it, it started, Newt Gingrich.
0: New, uh, I, 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 would not, I would not. I would not disagree. Mitch McConnell
5: is New, Newt Gingrich's acolyte. Yeah. Um. Uh. He learned. Yeah. So. Uh. I'm. am sorry. So basically, you have. Um. Let's just put it this way. Uh. A minority of the country, meaning. Uh. About two thirds of white people in this country, hell, less than that, 60%, maybe, um, are not going to dictate the terms to the rest of the country forever, right? Like, they can try as hard as they want to entrench minority rule. Let's call it what it is, minority rule. You know, a minority of voters has elected the president two times. Uh,
6: we are covered by a Supreme Court that has been packed, Right? What Mitch McConnell did is unprecedented in our history as a country, right? That's not a norm. <laughs> that is an unprecedented power grab and a naked one.
5: Um, so in the long run, that will not stand, right? What You know, we will do as little damage to the constitutional order as we have to. And I say this as someone who's been talking with a lot of liberal activists for the <laughs> last few weeks. Uh-huh. We're going to do as little damage to the constitutional order, but... The dead hand of Ronald Reagan cannot tell a new generation how to operate. They're going to change the rules. Well, I mean, the country belongs to the people who live in it.
0: That's an existential question, I think, because baseball has to figure out how you square the emphasis on efficiency with all of these teams with keeping people engaged in the game. Because I agree with you. It's it's diametrically opposite right now, one pursuit and the other.
5: Yeah, I, I mean... And Tony Clark is a guy that I, I have a lot of respect for. Um, I have reached out to the union about a documentary project that I had in mind. We had him in Greenlit, so I don't want to talk about it sure. yet. But um, but there was a project that we, we, we've been pitching, and I went to the union, and the union gave me their support in terms of access to players. Okay. Because that's what we would need to do the, to, to do the show. And the advice I got, this wasn't from Tony Clark directly, but I had just, Armageddon looks like. And, I mean, Craig Kibble is one of the top five closers in the sport. Yeah. He was not signed because the metrics said he's not worth the investment. And again, if your argument is you're trying to win and these analytics are telling you this is the, the not the smart way to spend your dollars, I cannot argue with that. Like, if I go on in a market and I say, well, the people, the host will say, well, why didn't the Brewers go after him? Why didn't twenty nine other teams go for, go after him? Right, it, it, Keuchel too. It's it's the same thing. So you know this argument that you know there's a solution. There's an easy solution to this. I don't think there is. But they are bunkering down. That's why when I when I've outlined uh, baseball's crisis, mm-hmm. it's a twofold thing. There's a short term and a long term. The short term is how are they going to reinvent themselves after a work stoppage? And because in a sport where they're dealing with apathy, where the word boring is trending on Twitter during your All-Star game, then how will you deal with, it's not going to be the same animosity that people had in the 90s. The 94 uh, strike broke people's hearts. This won't break people's hearts. Not in a mass appeal. So the result will be, that's the first part of the crisis. The second part of the crisis, and again, I hate making it, me, and it's not, but I'm 45. When I turn 75, so that's 30 years from right now. Mm-hmm. I think baseball is not a major sport because if you look at my generation, so I'm in my 40s, and I think that this is the last generation with the passion that I remember from growing up. I think people in their 30s have it, but it's deme- it's diminishing. But I think once you get down to the to the 20s and especially the teens. I don't know anybody who's interested, and so what I fear is that when a 15 year old now is in his is 45, when I'm 75, I wonder what that sport will be, and that's part two of the crisis. And I think that the after effects of a work stoppage will be felt, but what it'll do is, wait a second, you guys are you millionaires are walking out. That's what the fans going to say, right? And then they're gonna say, and by the way, your game is not fun.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. That, that,
5: that's the, that to me, that's that's the that's the crisis. And I I, I I don't wish it on anyone. Right. But I have yet and I don't have any faith because you know, again, I'm not trying to plug a po- well, this is a podcast, sure. so let's plug other podcasts. Absolutely. Um, on my Sports with Friends podcast, I have accused uh, Rob Bamford of a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of a guy who I considered a friend for a long time. I have learned so much information that I have no longer invited him on the podcast. The situation, and if you listen to the, the episode entitled Baseball Cop, mm-hmm. and which is a book written by a former uh, police detective who worked for Major League Baseball, uh, and then there's another uh, episode where Eddie, uh, Eddie Dominguez comes back on the show uh, after the David Ortiz shooting, mm-hmm. if you hear those two episodes, you will have no faith that Rob Manfred has his eye on the prize. And so this sport is rudderless. Then, yeah. you know, I'm not going to get political on you, but you know, there is a, a there is a subconscious about people who are disillusioned with the president. Yeah, right. Like yeah. there's a lot of people, whether you're for him or against him, there are a lot of people who are very, very upset that he's in office. Sure. Think about that from a baseball standpoint. If you are a baseball fan and your team's not in it, and you look at this sport and say, "Show me a leader. Who's the leader? It's not. It's 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 not Manfred. And that's uh, that's a problem. And the owners are in cahoots with everything he's doing. So he's not going anywhere. No. <laughs> and and the problem, you know, I used to worry that the union. Had gone with their heart with Tony Clark and not with their head because if you remember this, the last two uh, heads of the players union were lawyers. Yes, and I said you might want to get a lawyer. Like <laughs> this is never anything against Tony Clark, but right. don't you want to hire a lawyer? And all that my friends at the union said were, "Don't worry." <laughs> We have lawyers. I said,
0: okay, we're we're, we're good. Some things that really can't be quantified. First time uh, NFL head coach, albeit one who, again, has a very good uh, relationship with all the key players on the team, was very much respected in his uh, previous capacity on this team. So as you're looking at this team and you're fashioning a model, like I said, I would guess that this would be one of the more challenging ones because of uh, the, the lack of continuity from the end of last season to this season. But what do you think when you see a team like this as as, you're, as they're incorporating all their different changes?
7: So I don't think that it's as hard because there's a little bit more known than you think, right? So we have Freddie Kitchens' lineage. We know he has like a Nick Saban component from LSU. Yep. We've seen some of the ways that he has worked with Baker Mayfield in the last part of the season. We know a little bit more about you know the weapons, obviously, than when you get a guy... Odell, you understand where he goes. You have Jarvis. You have a lot of well-established players. It's harder when there's a bunch of rookies. Who Like Arizona is far more difficult for me to forecast because I don't know how they're going to use Kyler Murray specifically, and I'm not sure what's going on with their O-line. You're, the, the Browns are not I'm not going to say they're easy because it's always difficult, but it's not as hard as all that for a couple of reasons. Um, the hardest thing I'm having – right now is figuring out your O-line because Mm -hmm. Zeitler's departure is a a big deal. So that's going to be... That's an interesting part of it for me. But as far as our skill players are concerned, I think, you know, you're in good shape. Like, the Browns are in very good shape and it's an exciting year and the pressure and Miles Garrett is like... There are a lot of things to be really excited about. So the Browns are actually, for once, not very... Not the hardest team by, not even close. They're probably an average team in terms of how to prep for the season and how to kind of anticipate what, what's going to happen with them. The
0: actresses who were brought up in this whole uh, college admissions scandal here, uh, you pointed out, I think justifiably so, hey, nobody's talking about Bill Macy. He's married to Ms. Huffman there, and uh, you don't really hear his name out there very much. So uh, some folks managed to remain Teflon even when there's scandal swirling all around them.
6: Well, that's the question, you know. Did Bill Macy just not have any anything as part of it, right? Is, is you know, where plausible deniability? By the way, yesterday was Bill Macy's 69th birthday. Happy birthday! Happy birthday, uh, Bill Macy!
0: Great one.
6: He, yeah, there you go. Uh, but that's the question, right? You know, it, look in every family. There's a there's a split of who handles what, and sometimes you know the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Maybe in this case, Bill Macy, there wasn't enough. In terms of the process to say, hey, you're part of this, right? You know, the check comes out of whatever accounts, maybe they couldn't connect him directly. Uh, And as I tried to point out, I did a quick periscope when I first heard the news because it became all the rage here in LA because of, well, USC being part of that. In addition to all the other scandals and problems that they have with the athletic program and going all the way through the university. You've got interim people in important jobs. Lynn Swan today, uh, or I should say, uh, for the tape process uh, on Thursday, the talk that, you know, Lloyd Laughlin's husband on uh, plane with the then USC athletic director, be it Pat Hayden or Lynn Swan, going to Augusta. You know, so there, there's all those tentacles. And, and I just always raise my hand and just say, you know what, think about your own community. Think about how many kids maybe go to the schools that aren't in district paying property taxes in the town you're in. Yep. But because mom mom, dad, they, maybe they were there, but then they couldn't afford to stay in district. Or maybe it's just an opportunity with grandma's maybe address order. And not to simplify it and equate those to one-to-one. Here we're talking about defrauding and creating bogus charities and and things of that nature. You know, a lot of this is, you know, legacy. If you've been giving money to a university for 30 years after graduating or however many years, I'd like to think you get a little more treatment for your kid and a little more consideration if if their scores are within the proper lines. Now, if you start making up uh, things that they did, well, I I don't know, we've, we've hit a weird gray area. But certainly, you know, the the idea that if you can help contribute to a college, because again, meritocracy is everybody wants to call it. So come on, there's shades of gray in all of it. Yep. You know, in, term, in terms of an admissions process, because you're trying to find a well-rounded student body and make make it as diverse and, and inclusive as you can. And let's face it, not everybody, you know, gets to their, uh, near their ascent and finishing their ascent at age 17 or age 18. Like I knew kids who were actually brilliant in the classroom but they were the worst test takers you'd ever see yep they'd absolutely freeze up i had a girl that i went to high school with straight a's ap classes you name it absolutely bombed the act wow absolutely bombed it and shattered her world she eventually got you know got to take it again and and did better and with those test scores and everything she'd done still, I think went to the school she wanted to, or at least on the metal stand of, you know, her final choices okay. But it was the test was not reflective of who she was in a classroom. Sure. And so likewise, you can have the outlier. I was a great test taker. I was pretty good in the classroom, but I'd sit down because I couldn't study for it. I mean, you can study for the type of question and everything else. I'd kick my feet up and have fun. Uh huh.
8: And
6: it, Pretty well that way. Uh, everybody looks at those things a little differently. So to say that there's one way to get to a proper public. And look, there's enough seats as long as you can pay the bills. Right. You know, or somebody or the government or, you know, you know, loans and grants or whatever. As long as the bills are getting paid, they can always add a plus one.
0: Additional thoughts on handicapping the race on Saturday, as well as if you have any thoughts whatsoever about any of the horses we didn't talk about, which uh, I believe are, by my standards, country, house, War of Will, Long Range Toddy, Spin-Off, Plus Parfait, Cutting Humor, Gray Magician, Master Fencer. Uh, so, uh, Jody, uh, take it away. Whether it be any thoughts on them, thoughts on handicapping the race, or anything we didn't really get to thus far.
6: Uh, out of the group that we bypassed, the only one that I would consider using, and, and I'm not just going to go three deep, I'm going to use horses that you guys used in super practice and the like. Um, but none of us touched on it uh, Todd Fletcher trained horse. Late developer, I know Todd thought very highly of him last year, had some injury issues. They didn't get the three-year-old campaign started till later than they wanted to, but he won down in Florida, uh, ran a good second in Louisiana. Um, I love the Breeding Heart spun is one of my favorite sires, and I'm a Todd Kletcher guy. He hasn't had as much success in the Triple Crown races as he has over entire years when he's been the best trainer right along with Bob Baffert in the entire country. Um, But he has, over the last couple of years, at least broken through and been more of a factor in the triple crown races. If Spinoff got a piece of it, finishing third or fourth, uh, just stays wide and gets a nice wide trip, I think it's bred to get the entire distance. Uh, so you might be able to get a suck up
0: third or fourth. You were joking about it before about you know being at your best at your age. You have the athleticism, as the world knows by now, to still do a Canadian destroyer in the year 2019. I understand. I believe that was WrestleMania week when you broke that out. So it's remarkable that again that you can, you can do that. You got the athleticism. You always had the athleticism back in the day, but grounded in the fundamentals. And fundamentals—that's what you got to teach these kids. Because uh, you know, and this—it's been the way for at least thirty or forty years. You watch it on TV, you think it's all about the spectacular moves, but it don't mean anything unless you can string a match together.
8: All right. Well, you see, you got that exactly right. Uh, you know, we, we just mentioned, uh, and I'm going ahead and plug it now. You go on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, School of Morton. Now I have live YouTube shows that come on, uh, on my school, Morton, from my school. Uh, it's not about me. you never, you hardly ever see me on the show. If it is, it's at the opening, or it's just a little video they're showing, because I teach guys now. One of the, one of the great ones uh, uh, for the New Japan is Chase Owens in the Bullet Club. He's one of my boys that come from my school. Do you have a new upcomer, man? This name's Luscious Lawrence. He's, uh, he's gonna be at the Ring of Honor shows that I'm on. Uh, it's, it's what I, te- I don't teach them, you know, it's great, but the art of our business is lost for now. It's not being able, see, I was a baby face that sewed, and when I sewed, and they got the heat on me, I told a story to give Robert the hot tag and to go into the finish, and that's one thing that I really learned from Dusty Rhodes. Uh, you know, well being there, I studied Dusty, I- you know, before we did Angles, I'd sit down, and, and this is the reason a lot of uh, bookers used their self in, in their Angles, It's because they knew what they wanted in their head. Mm-hmm. But they really couldn't get the guys in their business to understand what they were doing, and, and Dusty, and I gotta say that, he liked that. He, I understood what we were trying to do, because, dude, I, I love this business, So I still, it's about that art of telling the story, having re-psychology. See, it's a lost start. I'll go, you know, I'll watch a lot of guys now. I mean, I it, every, one thing, well, I'll just go ahead and say it. One hot spot just goes to another hot spot. Mm-hmm. It don't mean nothing. You know, a lot of times you can watch TV and you know one one of the wrestlers is going to do a big move because there's 20 people on the floor to catch you. Uh, And I'm not trying to be mean. It's great. But when they learn learn how to tell that story and then put that big flying thing in in there where it means something, that's really where they're really going to blow the roof off the buildings. That's where they're really going to get their ratings. You know, it's like any business. You know, I I live here in Bristol, Tennessee. They had the NASCAR race uh, here in town this weekend. And I was a big NASCAR fan, but now it's got to the same point. And And I'm telling you, I don't know who's who in wrestling business. Everybody's got the same beard. Everybody's got the same haircut. Everybody wears the same things. are just different color. Uh, I'm looking for that great character, that one great character. That's the reason I'm so over. He's that great character that's different from everybody else. And plus, he can still work. Uh, see, I like that. That's when I look at people. It's uh, you know, our, the people that are creative in, in writing. You know, you got to learn. It's a lot more to it than just going out and doing hot spots. you got to make... You know, you remember we'd be on TVS and, that, and one of our matches, the TV would go off and we're still at our match. Yep. And the people wouldn't know what happened that match to the next Saturday night. Yeah. At the end of it. So they don't do that no more. They try to squeeze... They try to work, squeeze a 20-minute wrestling match into five minutes. And you can't do that. You know, you've got to have you got to know who your top boys are. And it takes the underneath boys to put those top boys. And then, you know, it's vice versa. Every which way it goes, any way you get it to go, everything's got to mean something. And if it don't, you know, it's not. And I'm starting to see that a lot. You know, I watched a new show the other day. You know, uh, they got kind of off into all the high spots, but then they settled it back and went back to the wrestling part. Mm-hmm. And that's the part I love about it. You know, a uh, headlock routine in our the rest of the match is really cool. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's a lost form of art. I see a lot of guys get lost in the match. And I always remember this. The guys out here listening to girl wrestling, whenever you get lost in the match, a headlock would cure everything. Just grab a headlock, start
0: back over. The Pac-12 has rarely sent anybody to the national championship game. I think the last time was Washington, and they didn't fare so well against Alabama, so... Yeah, they're, they, these are conferences that are kind of feeling the squeeze. And I'll tell you what, the ACC and the Big 12, they're but for the grace of God. Because if the ACC didn't have Clemson, they'd be just another conference. If the Big 12 didn't have Oklahoma, they'd be just another conference. But both of these schools have risen to that level in recent years. Uh, and, and they've been teams that have been able to uh, get into the... Uh, the, the college football playoff, and I look for them to do it again.
4: Well, one thing, Rick, we need—we need to happen is we need, to, it we need to, some of these other teams to step up. We don't—I I mean, I think people are getting tired of seeing Clemson Alabama every year in the championship. Let's let's get Michigan to step up. Let's get Oregon to step up. Let's see some a little bit of parity. Yeah. I, I don't want—I mean, I, 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 it's a good matchup.
0: But I'm tired of seeing it. When you look at the things that are unforeseen in, in the summer of 2014, there's another thing that really kind of came up that I think would would provide one of your biggest challenges that you would have leading into the convention. And that being, I believe it was in August of 2014, you had the first of these outbreaks in the different cities, this was Ferguson at this point, uh, where there was uh, the police shooting, there was unrest, and there would be an awful lot of that. I mean, there's a little bit of distance now. I don't think it's necessarily at the point where we forget, but the, the times between then and in 2016, it was really very fevered. You would have something happening every so often and then unfortunately, right in the lead up to the convention, uh, you had the the, the shooting of the police officers in Dallas. There was, uh, I believe in Louisiana not long before then, there, there uh, uh, there was an ambush. So as you're looking at this situation, this sort of societal pattern that's developing in the two years leading up to the convention, I have to say, I mean, from, from my perch of, of worrying about this from, from, for your sake and thinking, oh, please let this go well for Ed, and mm-hmm. please let things, as all the friends and family were, as you well know, that was one of the foremost factors, I think, that we were looking at and thinking could be an issue. So as you're going through it, what's going through your head as far as the challenges that have been put out there by this whole kind of outbreak?
9: Well, it definitely was. Um, it was uh, quite a challenge. And... Uh we knew we were going to be on a worldwide stage, mm-hmm. so we had to pay attention to what was going on you know, in the world uh, and in the country. And uh, Ferguson, Missouri was uh, the start of something that I think had been brewing for a long time mm-hmm. uh, in uh, urban centers around the country. And um, it just really uh, kind of ignited a, uh, uh, a new way of uh, doing things and a new way that the was uh, voicing their opinion. Mm-hmm. So we had Ferguson, we had some issues in Baltimore, and then as you mentioned before, you know right before the convention we had some, uh, some tragic events. So uh, during our training it was uh, it was quite a challenge. I mean, mm-hmm. There was no doubt about it. We had to train a different way. In the meantime we were doing that. We were in the, in the uh, beginning stages of being monitored by the federal government, mm-hmm. being placed under a consent decree. Uh, by the u s Department of Justice, so there was a lot of moving parts, but um, you know the men and women in law enforcement are very very resilient and uh, they were amenable to uh, to change and we were committed to having a uh, a safe event.
0: The one thing with Boston with the goal differential, because I'm I'm sitting here, nobody can see me doing this, but I'm making the on the one hand on the other hand gesture, and I'm curious as to what you guys think weighs stronger in this. Not that either of these things is necessarily the determinative factor, but those these are huge factors, huge advantages that each team has for Boston, as you said, an almost historic goal differential advantage at this point. Uh, One of the very best of the 21st century of any of the playoff teams in there. So they've got that and then St. Louis on the other hand they have a big advantage in terms of the whole rest v rust kind of uh, balance here. St. Louis is going to have some days off probably just enough to, to get a little healthier but not enough to get rusty. Boston has to worry about the rust because teams that are off as long as they have been historically, uh, have uh, not done as well, or at least have gotten off to a rougher start. So isolating it just to those two factors, uh, Steve, uh, which team do you think uh, benefits more from their advantage?
6: I think the long layoff would bother me more if I had a younger team. Uh, but with a veteran team
8: like Boston, I'm, I'm worried about that. And I, and I just look at their goaltending with Rask and how he's been. I think, you know, uh, the St. Louis kids got all the ink, but I think Rask, for my point, has been the best goalie in the playoffs. He's a... He's three and zero in elimination games, and he stopped ninety five of ninety six shots in elimination games. So when the money's on the line, um, uh, he, he's been money.